Hello, folks. This is Princess. You are listening to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends. It's tough. We're in a very tough spot. I think that what we're doing right now is of great benefit and virtue because it's an end around between this whole corrupt informational system, media system. We claim to believe in a God who spoke the universe into existence and literally raised himself from the dead. And yet we're not going to believe that anything else exists in the spirit realm, even though his word tells us that they do. Their bodies weren't permitted to go to sleep like humans do. And they weren't permitted to go to heaven. So they wander the earth. You know, I've seen the eyes turn black to unknown tongues being spoken. These giants would live way up in the highland. The young graves, the young men would hide up in the trees and wait for one of these 12 footers to come walking down the path and they would jump on them and kill them, drag them back to the village and the village would feast on the body. Then people start to get weapons, they start to get armor, they start to build cities, they start to fortify their cities. Now, God looks down and there's violence everywhere. The battle, this war that we are at, is not against each other. It's against these principalities and these rulers and these archons in the high places. It's really worthwhile to read the Bible yourself. Fear is one of the primary drivers of mind control because we have to take every thought captive and resist fear. You're going to have a testimony that is a justice case against the kingdom of darkness. Welcome back to the Millennial Mustard Seed. I am your host, Rod, and thank you for being here with me for another awesome episode. I have Gary Wayne here for a part two, highly anticipated. Gary's been on many times over the years, but this is a unique episode. We get into Sarnunos and the hive mind, the mark of the beast. We get into the masculine and feminine Hebrew. Lilith and Mesopotamia. Asking some questions on that, it's pretty interesting what Gary has to say. We talk a little bit about Kabbalism and this ultimate faith wedge from the enemy and the fig tree generation. Gary's a wealth of information. His book is going to be releasing, I believe it is March 14th. I'll have a link in the show notes to Gary's website so you guys can pre-order his book and if you're a first-time listener and you don't know who Gary is he's a Christian contrarian prolific researcher and he lays out quite a foundation connecting all of these different rabbit trails together from the occultic and the ancient perspectives and multicultural perspectives to help show us how all of this is connected and the enemy has an ultimate faith wedge that has been in place since the days of the garden and we get into many other topics regarding all of this here on this episode but to share some of those highlights with you and a brief overview this is important information in my opinion all of it's important it is critical that we understand who Jesus is the price that was paid for us 
and that more importantly than any of this information that I do here on the podcast, that you are praying and reading and working out your salvation with fear and trembling before God. Now is the time to have humility, to encourage, and to pray in that secret place for the days that are ahead. A lot of churches are not willing to talk about this kind of information, but I'm hoping by being an example and being open-minded and allowing the Word of God to have the ultimate say over everybody's opinion, everybody's research, it will lead in a way that will show pastors, you know what, I can keep my confidence in the Word of God and that the Lord is raising up a new generation right now, real time, to dive into these topics, to break down the deception, get the laser focus back on the cross because deception is at hand. So before we get into this episode, let's do some quick maintenance work here. My book released here on February 10th. Link is in the show notes where you can get a copy on Amazon. You can also go to my website, which is always in the details of the show notes, and find some more information on the book there. The words are salt. We were endorsed by a good friend of the show, Carly Tebbs, who had a great hand in helping me get this ready to be released and her encouragement is just unparalleled most people have no idea but behind the scenes it was early 2021 when dr laura sanger prophetically spoke over the poem his way and this is before i had the book concept i just knew i was spilling my heart and writing these poems over the course of a few years when she heard it she spoke prophetically to me over that poem in particular saying it would go out and encourage people all over this country and all over the world. So to see that come to pass is just amazing. And before we get into the episode, leave me that five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast catcher. That helps the algorithms. It helps the show grow so we can find one more person just like me and you. And if you want to plant a seed and partner with us here in this ministry, you can find those details in the show notes as well. And I'm not going to waste any more time because I am ready. Are you guys ready? Let's go. Hello, everybody. I'm Gary Wayne, and happy to be back on the Millennial Mustard Seed that's about to begin now. Gary, we are back on this part two, man, and you're just a wealth of information. We covered some crazy cool topics in this first part, and I'm excited to jump into the second half, man. Thank you for being here with me again. Well, honored to be with you, and uh, if the questions are as good as they were in the first part, I think the audience is going to be sitting up and taking notice. Uh, I think it was an awesome first show, so looking forward to part two here. Gary, your responses are what literally lead into the better questions. I don't really have many questions written down. I, you just say stuff and I make, sometimes I make a mini connection and it leads to a better question. So we're quite a team here. <laughs> awesome. So, man, I just want to start this one off and just, you know, I want to ask you, um, th this is something that's kind of been bubbling up and I think it's going to become more important as time goes on, but let's talk a little bit about CERN. And how does that play a part, if any part, in the things that uh, are going on today? What do we know about CERN and what do you think is going on there? 
Yeah, it's a big topic, CERN. Uh, so I'll try not do an hour on it because you could do two hours on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I believe it, yeah. yeah. So this is a uh, merging of technologies. Uh, we have a lot of technologies that are developing and we're starting to see these parallel lanes starting to come to nexus points and merge. And so at CERN, we have... Uh, the merging of quantum computing and AI. So you can go into multiple universes uh, and not just do a single search, but do what, whatever the capability of AI is to search in all of those different dimensions and different locations in those dimensions all at once. So there's a technology there that I would call angelic technology that's developing. I think that technology is in part part of the beast uh, mark that's going to be developed down the road. Um, and there's a lot more to it than just that. But uh, having access to whatever they're searching for at CERN in another dimension is uh, very, very important. And I think there's two things that are probably going on in terms of what they might be looking for. Uh, one is a direct correlation to what we talked about in part one of this uh, series is with the pit prison in Revelation 9 where a star is going to open up the abyss and we talked about the pit prison being in Sheol or Hades the other world in the earth but in another dimension and so this prison is going to be unlocked so when we're talking about searching into different dimensions then one wonders whether or not they're looking with this technology to get into another dimension to open up the pit prison but there's another end time prophecy that we need to be aware of that might bring new meaning to the tower of babel in terms of what is going on with cern is that if they are looking to go in other dimensions and Satan tried to invade heaven in the angelic rebellion to put up his throne there and to be like God. And we know this is going to happen in Revelation 12 again. Then for humans to do that and participate in it, then they're going to need to be able to somehow break those barriers into that interdimension um, as well to be part of this war against the evil lord of the universe that they like to call the god of the bible and so when we i look at another passage you have daniel 8 10 where i mentioned in part one that he would go into heaven and throw down some of the starry host so i think this is part of the technology that they're trying to to look at there you also have you know, development of other technology like cryptocurrency uh, and Daemon algorithms and all sorts of things that are going to be going into this beast system that's going to be an implant system that the Davos group, who are kind of meeting right now as we talk, um, said, I think in 2017 or 2018, that this system is going to come through the demand from the people through the delivery system of healthcare. Uh, so that it can prevent diseases and give you longer life and stuff like that. And so this is a technology that's going to be developed to go interdimensionally with that contact point. And so it has a ways to go yet with that angelic technology, but it's on its way. Um, so 
in that sort of aspect, they're looking for, and people have heard the term God particle, which is sort of the superficial aspect of it. And then there's other terms that they like to use for it as well. The actual particle that they're looking for comes out of the Vedas and the Upanishads, and which is why you have Shiva associated with this as well. And understand Shiva is a destroyer god and an avatar, avatara uh, type of god. So it's an avatar that would uh, uh, move into other human hosts or spirits offspring hosts as a mm-hmm. Narashima as an avatar, as being the avatar of the avatar, with mm-hmm. uh, Nirashima being, I think, the character that Lewis based Aslan on, because Nirashima is a lion uh, Nephilim in that tradition in, 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 in the subcontinent of India, and that you have uh, this search for this particle that they call the Atman, or the Atma particle, also known as the Brahman, or the divine essence, as the New Age would call it. And this Atma particle of the Brahman has all knowledge in the universe that it is contained within it and however many particle coals that are invisible and they can't you can't see it you can't measure it you can measure particles in the quantum and but this one you can't so this is an invisible particle that could merge with a visible particle that you can measure and then through quantum entanglement distribute all of that information instantaneously throughout all dimensions instantaneously in this angelic technology is wanting to present through the beast system and it will be here before the actual mark is and it goes to its upper level so look for variations of it at a lower level uh, even before babylon comes in and will um and that babylon will use it but not to the point of if you take this implant system uh, that will obviously have some other changes that Antichrist brings in that, you know, you're going to go to the lake of fire, just like the fallen angels do. So this is that unlimited knowledge aspect that's part of the godhood that they're going to promise. And it also has the healing capabilities to make you like a Raphaim, a demigod. And so you can have godhood in the physical world. And so... The connection as it goes back to Nimrod is is Nimrod was this sort of antichrist figure who had the Babel religion, which is the root Hebrew word for Babylon, for the Babylon religion of the end time, the universal polytheist religion that is coming. And that Babel in the Sumerian traditions, Akkadian traditions and Mesopotamian traditions as a whole has a different meaning and confusion of languages that is understood that happened at the Tower of Babel, which it agrees, those accounts agree on that there's a confusion of the languages, but they have a different understanding for the Tower of Babel. So in ancientology, ziggurats, towers, pyramids were built on locations where they could receive the power of the gods. So some sort of energy or ley lines and things like that. And that they had more than just a 
uh, honoring of the gods, but they were an angelic technology that they could tap into, whether it was an energy source or other things. So all of a sudden now you're thinking, well, what, what the heck is Nimrod building here if these things are understood differently? Well, in Akkadian, for example, you have Babel, which, which would be in Akkadian transliterated into English as Babalu, and ILU, which is the same type of transliteration of AL out of EL as in a god or an angel. It could be just IL as well. So Babalu means not confusion of languages, but Bab is in a gateway or a portal, and Elu is of the gods. So this is a stargate of the gods. Is it to wormholes the different places of the universe, or is it different? dimensions that it can have access through. So when you get the sort of greater mythos about Nimrod, who was an Antichrist archetypical figure, who is the enemy of God, and in out, you know, into 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 the sort of extra information you get in legend and in other accounts of Nimrod, he is saying to God that if you ever get out of line again, you ever try and bring another flood again i'm going to go into heaven and i'm going to kill you that's how hubris he was he was literally hubris like the antichrist will say unheard of things in the end time and so one deduces that this was a technology that he was looking to get his gods out of the pit prison so one presumes not only the parent gods before the flood are in that pit prison in another dimension, but also the gods after the flood who did the same crimes as in the Balim and the Council of Gods that we talked about in part one. And they would be in the pit prison as well for doing the same crime. So creating the Raphaim, for example, and trying to destroy the the earth to make it Shakath again, uh, you know, perverted, um, decayed, ruined, words like that as the sort for corrupt that the whole earth had become. So the plant genomes and the and the human DNA. And so they went to this prison. So he may have been trying to get his gods that he's worshiping out of the prison when creating this technology. And that uh, he is associated with giants. So he intermarries with giants as creates some of the hybrid nations. And I'll cover some of that off as this connection into that. And as I do in the first book, but in a little different way, a little bit more biblical, a lot more biblical in, uh, in book two. And so not only is he maybe wanting to do that, but he actually has the ability through this portal to maybe get into heaven and to storm heaven like Satan did. And as what antichrist, is going to do in the end time. And that all Antichrist wannabes of the beast empires before that Michael would fight against, not to come about, but to ensure Antichrist couldn't come about, over that beast empire would try and do the same thing because nothing is new under the sun. What was will be again. It will be like the days of Noah, both before and after the flood, 600 years before the flood, 350 years after the flood, as Genesis 9.29 talks about, and the identical language in Hebrew as it's translated into English, as the Greek is translated into English in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and the book of Luke. So 
in their accounting of the days of Noah and with Luke, the days of Lot as well. So, which is a connection from the apocalypse of fire to uh, the transition into the next apocalypse by fire that's coming in the end time. Hmm. Fascinating. All right. So CERN, it's, it's interesting how they present it as if they're trying to make this um, world a better place while neglecting everybody who's in need in this world, <laughs> and people still fall for the, the lie that CERN is, I don't know, a hydron particle collider to advance science. And so yeah. everything you just laid down, dude, incredible. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Well, and, How does and, that... even, and even the name CERN, it's an acronym that they Cernunos. use for it. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's even tighter than that, as you Ooh. understand. Yeah. So Cernunos is the uh, Celtic deity, a nature mm-hmm. god, a pan-like god. Mm-hmm. Goat god like Azazel. Like, uh, antlers and stuff like that. And yeah, the horn god. The horn god. Um, uh, just as Odin is depicted in a similar way, the horn mm-hmm. god. Or Hearn is, there, is also called in, in the British Isles. Um, but you also have a, a god that is in the Etruscan pantheon, hmm. which is the proto uh, Italian or Latin pantheon that comes down so you have an an aboriginal people that are settling after the flood Hmm. that have been recreated which in book two i make the case for the Raphaim, uh whom the people who disperse after babel 100 years after the flood are going to go live amongst and so the descendants of japheth are going to move into rome and 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 the etruscans are the indo-aryan giants that are there before just as scythians are the proto or the aboriginals for the descendants of Japheth who move into Greece. And, and, and so you get an inheritance of that polytheist religion from the Indo-Aryan Zoroastrian religion source right after the flood. And the Persians the same way or Elam, uh, the ancient ones of old, the, uh, uh, which are giants. And I explain that. Uh, the difference between Elam and the Elamites that come from Shem, who are intermarry with these uh, dark-haired uh, Persians um, in in Mesopotamia shortly after the flood, and so in that pantheon, which you have cognate gods in Greek pantheon, and they're very much just you know. The Roman pantheon is essentially the Greek pantheon, and, and you can take that all around the world. But they actually have a god named Cern, C-E-R-N. And uh, that is a direct sort of connection back to these degraded seraphim watchers that show up as satyrs after the flood. Interesting. Yeah, and satyr is the Hebrew word um, that means you know, hairy or a hairy goat or a hairy goat God. So we get it twice with Mm. uh, Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34, but you also get other devil goat gods uh, where this word is used and it's the Hebrew word sair, transliterated satir. And you also get that aspect as it attaches to antichrist as satire as as in in harry as well as, and I, I cover that in book two on on all of those sort of connections and so sair is this root word of harry it's uh, it comes from uh several words and it's a contracted compound word sair uh so sarah or just saw for harry or in harry goat 
And then you have ear, which is the Hebrew word for watcher that shows up four times in Daniel 4. So these are hairy watchers and by inference, a degraded <laughs> watcher. It looks a lot like the if you Google Cernunos, it looks a lot you're describing that. Now, what is the statue that's actually at CERN, right? I mean, there's this um, goddess statue um, at the facility. I mean, I'm, I've never been there, obviously, but I've seen pictures of it. And people say, oh, no, that's because of X, Y, Z. But honestly, your research is showing there. It's so connected. It's almost a full-time job to understand how well it's connected. But what yeah. is that statue that's out front of CERN? Yeah, could you just describe it for the audience, please? Yeah, give me one second here. Lord Shiva. <laughs> Interesting. This imagery, it looks like a woman dancing in the middle of a sun, kind of like she's got wings behind her back, but it's labeled as Shiva at CERN. So Lord Shiva Natan Raja, bronze Hindu. It's considered art. Yeah, that's what are we the, doing uh, with that, man? That's the destruction uh, mm. dance of Shiva. That is a mother goddess that's within there. And with the understanding of Shiva as a destroyer god, equivalent to Abaddon and Apollyon, uh, Azazel of the Abyss, and Azazel is depicted in the Book of Enoch as being in the pit prison. The leader of the watchers, the sons of God that were sent there for their crimes. To have a new age, to have a renewal, you have to have, as in one of the other occult allegories, the phoenix rising out of the ashes, to have a renewal of the earth. And a renewal is a reference from the occult version as what a Holy Spirit does. This is the divine essence. This is the Sophia of Gnosticism, as it's cognizant. The Sophia is the mother goddess, the queen of heaven, who creates the 12 archons in Gnosticism. The fallen angel we would understand as Satan, as well as the god of the Bible, because they reduce him to being equal with Satan and just another archon. She does that through this nebulous life force uh, to create these archons. She's also known as wisdom or knowledge or the divine essence, as you make that sort of connection that all knowledge comes from. Just as philosophy is the love of Sophia or the love of, of uh, wisdom. And just as that would be understood as the theology of the seven sacred sciences uh, because it's formed out of the first three sciences um, that give it its guidance that guides all of the other of the seven sciences that was the original platform for creating mysticism to keep the, the knowledge a secret, the knowledge of what Sophia and the fallen angels provide and the knowledge that the divine essence will provide as part of the Godhood with that interaction to the mark of the beast, as we talked about earlier. So you have all of this sort of intersecting. And then also we need to understand that the mother goddess is coming back in the end time and expect to see more and more preparation for the mother goddess. And it's kind of like the allegory of the Anjou, where it's the bee, and sometimes the fleur-de-lis in their occult heraldry is shown as a bee versus a fleur-de-lis. And that's because they had this hive mind in their belief system. 
in this hive mind is they could think in in telepathic ways and of course the whole model of this has the queen of heaven at the top in that hive system uh, and pause for thought as to why god provided or jehovah provided hornets to discombobulate the giants and the giant wars that i talked uh -huh. about because the hornet is the natural enemy of the bee and so oh. it would discombobulate oh, wow. them and they would panic and so they could just walk up and lop off their heads to make sure they would stay dead that's another rabbit hole i probably shouldn't have said that <laughs> <laughs> but anyway fun now <laughs> yeah we're having fun now so and so this is that whole mary apparition thing that is going on in preparation and she's described as the uh, sign of Revelation 12 in those Mary apparitions. You have another allegory that, you know, for Satan as being Leviathan, and that Leviathan is like the end-time empire that's a multi-headed Leviathan that comes up out of the sea. And Leviathan, the female was killed in prehistory, but not the male. But the male will be killed in the end time. And so that could be covering off Satan as part, you know, as partial going to the abyss and then at the end of the, the thousand years to the lake of fire, or it could be this, these beast empires because they're depicted as a Hydra Leviathan coming out of the sea in Revelation 13, 17, and 12. Um, and that uh, this is, you know, obviously the empires of the spirits offering from the angels with Satan as being, you know, the head of the council of the gods until the end time is over. And so you have this, this, this sort of allegory that there are these consorts to fallen angels in polytheism. So each patriarchal god has a matriarchal goddess. So let's say Osiris and Isis, and that's a common sort of pairing. So Leviathan thought in a satanic term, as a degraded angel, he lost his consort, whoever that would be. And But if he is going to bring that mother goddess back, because it's not really dead yet, it's just in the pit prison with the other fallen angels, it will go to the lake of fire with Satan, then you will have an introduction of the mother goddess. And you have uh, an interesting term in Daniel 11 where you have Antichrist introducing, after he destroys Babylon in Revelation 17, he reintroduces a new god and a new religion for the last three and a half years. And that's a god of fortresses, which is really interesting because fortresses, is the Hebrew word maus, that's rooted in the Hebrew word as, that's rooted in the Hebrew azaz, that's also connected to ez for goat, and those are all the source words for azazel, the scapegoat in Le Leviticus 13, that we don't get a reason for what sins are being sacrificed for the second goat on the Day of Atonement. But even more importantly, so whether or not it's a god that's connected to azazel or not, there's an interesting aspect that is part of the word God there. That's not L, as in the singular for a God or the Supreme God, El Elyon, God Most High, Father, as Jesus called him, Abba. And 
it's not Elohim as God in the superlative sense as, as being singular and as with the tripart as all three. Depending on the application, you have to take that back to Hebrew to understand that. Um, and it's not Yehovah of the Elohim that that word God goes back to, but it goes back to Eloah. And the A-H is the female suffix, just as the I-M is the male suffix. Hmm. And so you could interpret that as a goddess that Antichrist worships secretly in the end time. But I, I, I do think there's going to be this very visible um, goddess worship uh, in the end time. And we see a lot of parts of this ideology coming back into Christianity with Sophia as being the word for wisdom, as it's talked about in the New Testament. So as when the when Holy Spirit provides us wisdom, that's the Hebrew or the Greek word Sophia. And a lot of people are saying that is the fem feminine aspect of God. So it starts to really start to get a very, very close to polytheism with that sort of understanding. And then in the book of Proverbs, where it has... Uh, Wisdom, it is uh, going back to the Hebrew word shakma uh, uh, with that A-H um, plural, uh, even though it's rooted in a singular uh, plural, but and that is the feminine or the plural or both as it applies to wisdom. And people will point to, and they are particularly in a lot of European churches these days, that that is the feminine aspect of the Holy Spirit. So... We don't get that construct as as something that's doctrinal provided to us in Christianity, but what it's designed to do is to prepare Christians for the mother goddess to also come back. You have to be careful with the word the 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 suffix ah. It can mean a feminine aspect, or it can mean the applied power or action of the word that it's rooted in. So, for example, interesting. There's a word called gibberin that most people are familiar with, and this is a terrific uh, example. So that's the singular gibur, I am being the male plural, just as nephilim, male plural, seraphim, male, male plural, cherubim, and on and on and on. So as the male plural. But there, and that's 1368 in the, in the lexicon of Hebrew and Strong's. And in 1369, you get gibberah which means essentially the same thing, but it's the female suffix on gibur. And it's used in its application. It could be used for a female giant, but it's not in the Old Testament, even though Timna is a female giant. Thank God I would not like to see a very large, angry female giant. Yes, <laughs> good well, <laughs> Eliphaz married one, so. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Great the Malachites in Genesis 36, so. Oh, always causing problems. I'm not sure what that, but anyways, they started a new <laughs> dynasty of hybrids that weren't listed in the Table of Nations. I also cover them off in the new book. Um, but that's also used in application for the use of mightier power. So it would be used in the application of uh, God's strength or God's might or an angelic might. So you have to look at the application. And generally, it's the application that is the AH sort of implication. And so just as you have 
the god of fortresses here, the Eloa Maos, it would be the action of the power of that of that god of forces. So you have to be careful, but you have to be open to the fact that there is that, and that if you're going to yeah. say Nephilim were male, and as the I am, then you need to understand that there could be an AH application. So it really comes down to the context of the of the sentence. Uh, of the verse, the chapter, and does it does the translation match all the other scripture before you can decide what that full meaning is? Nephilah. My wife asked me a really interesting question that I want to ask you. She asked about Adam's first wife. Uh, she was insinuating that there was a, a first wife other than Eve, a very dark, not a good help. And I'm just like, where are you going with this? Like, I've never even heard that before. And then she had mentioned, well, does it have anything to do with Lilith? And, and I'm just like, oh my gosh. So does that ring any bells? Okay. So the oldest English translation we have, you could go to one earlier, but it's consistent with this is the original KGV. And so in the original KGV in 16, um, 1610 to 11, there is no this other wife. Um, if you go to the Masoretic text of that Hebrew, there is no this other wife. What you do get, though, is coming out of the Targums, which were designed in the time of Babylon and the exile, where the Hebrew language was being lost, and the average Jewish person that were living for the years in Babylon were lost the ability to speak Hebrew uh, and write Hebrew, and to they had started to speak Aramaic. And so what the rabbis did was is they created the Targums, which were commentaries in addition to the original Torah and books of the prophets and, and the books that they had at that time. And in that editorializing, they would put in stuff to sort of help explain things. So these are human commentaries added onto scripture because of the language changes. And what's important to understand here is that Kabbalism comes into Judaism in the time of the exile. So you get this polytheism. It's the Eastern mystical Judaic sect of the Western Heliopolis version that was promoted by the Essenes. And I have a great document on Essenes on how we know these are polytheists. I cover it off in the book. This document is for Christians in terms of what historians, the church historians, and other sources tell us about uh, the Essenes and how we know they were worshiping the religion of Egypt. So the Western versus the Eastern Magi version coming out of Babylon, the two pillars of polytheism after the flood uh, that was taken with them, one staying with Nimrod in Mesopotamia after Babel and the other one going with uh, Mizram. And in the Gnostic tradition, the secret society, the polytheist tradition, Hermes going along with um, Mizram to, to Egypt. And so you have... Uh, <coughs> 
I'm not sure what the topic was. I lost I lost my guy's train. I thought, what were, what were, what were we talking about? <laughs> well, quote unquote, Adam's first wife, not right. Eve. Okay, now I'm back. I'm back again. Sorry, I phased out. So <laughs> Happens to the best of us. <laughs> yeah. So what we learn is, is, is the Targum inserts this Lilith character as being the consort before Adam, before Eve is created. And, and the name is Lilith. But this is not anywhere found before that. And so it comes from the Mesopotamian tradition. In the Mesopotamian tradition, Lilith is a consort of Adam and is also a consort of Samael, Satan in his seraphic form, and is the offspring of Tiamat, a parent god, who's... Husband is Absu from before the flood, so either a demigod or an offspring god. Um, and also the root for all of these demonic forces associated with Lilith, as in the and also the matriarchal fairy and owl allegories for the bloodlines and imagery, and is the root for things like vampires and things like that. And of course, Lilith, Lilith shows up in Isaiah 34, uh, in, in our books and included amongst dragons and other fallen angels in the end times. So, uh, and it was a, you know, an owl that, you know, sort of walked like, uh, you know, hopped like a uh, being that w walked like a owl and a hopping sort of motion. So yeah, there's connections there, but not from how the Bible was written in, there may have been some translations that were using uh, the uh, Targum, but not as you take the history back. Uh, mm -hmm. That's polytheism that is being introduced into Christianity. So in your opinion, do you think that some of this stuff was removed um, in correlation with seal up this information that's talked about in Daniel, I don't know if that's 10 or 11. Do you think some of this stuff is coming into the light now for this generation, for us to understand the battle that we're up against and to trust our Bible? Or do you think that it was uh, intentionally kind of weeded out because it just, the masses couldn't get it. They just couldn't wrap their head around this stuff or I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this. Well, I, th I think you have to understand Judaic cultures. You have several large groups and some of them lean in different ways and they had totally lost their ways in terms of understanding the Bible and its application by the time Jesus came along. So, no, I think the, uh, I think the Hebrew transcripts that come down through the Masoretic text are reliable. Uh, certainly Jesus vouched for them when he was there and quoted from them. Um, and so I think, uh, that's the reason they were created. Israel was to preserve that and all records that we get, um, you know, from tablets or things, uh, you know, verify the accuracy of those. Um, now, you know, in the King James version Bible, uh, they didn't have some of the dead sea scroll ones, uh, manuscripts that were uncovered, um, and so the newer translations will use some of that, um, but none of that, I mean, there might be some ones that are um, shortened a little bit uh, in the Aramaic, in the Dead Sea Scroll ones. But, uh, you know, there's not that 
significant sort of change or corruption that you can sort of point to. So no, I, I, I don't accept that. And that all the information leads to us is, is that when you follow that line back, the, the translations or the accuracy of the uh, preserving of them is there. And when people look at, let's say, the uh, Septuagint, and I use the Septuagint in book two, but I'm very careful with it because it has a lot of corruptions in it. And in, in a lot of Greek translations out of Hebrew yeah. has a lot of corruptions in it. So hmm. much so that even when the translation for the KGV, they only used it as a reference, but not for translation. And because they, it was, it had this incredible reputation for being inaccurate and there's there's a number of inaccurate things that are in there uh, i won't go into all of them at this point in time but understand there's also a greek biases to it and and i will talk a little bit about that biases as it shows up a little bit in book two but they understood things in terms of their gods as a culture and their giants as a culture so you see some of that melding of that yeah, right. biases into the translation yeah, you're so right about that. Yeah, it's just like um, to understand prophecy and, and the Bible, we have to understand the ancient Hebrew mindset, right? The culture at the time, the people who wrote it, Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, helped make that quite recognizable. Yeah. And then, you know, same thing with, with what you're saying with the Septuagint, you know, there was a Greek bias there. So it's very interesting. And, and some of these questions that just kind of come up, you know, in the big picture... I look at it, Gary, and I go, it's so much easier to be completely solidified in the choice that I've made to follow Christ as the information stacks up about the depth of the darkness and how webbed and weaved all of this stuff is together. Because really, you know, if you're uneducated to all of it, you know, it's, it's like being a, a kindergartner. This is good. That's bad. Okay. Well, we all know what's good and what's bad. We're witness to it all the time. But but to actually understand the society, the level of information that you have been sharing with us here on this two part series, um, and and how all of it fits together, how we're supposed to look at the Bible and and understand these ancient concepts and introduce that into the light of all of this technology now with a million messages and a million signals causing confusion and chaos it's easy for me it's actually not confusing in the big picture in the in the small scale i still have a lot of really weird questions but so in a nutshell i got that little venting out i'm going to get off my soapbox and well, i kind of want to ask well did you have anything to comment on what i said there? yeah so what's what the polytheist forces have been doing and the globalists and for and the whole conspiracy uh, to have this rendezvous with destiny and to destroy the world and all the things that we've been talking about is that they've been laying down these faith wedges about the accuracy of the bible uh, in preparation for this rendezvous with destiny and so they're going to use all of this in the end times. So it's important to understand these things. It's important to understand uh, the the myth and what really was. So one other example I would use is the translation of Lord God uh, as Lord God when it's, you know, it should be Jehovah 
of the Elohim, just as you have the word of God as the yeah. logos of Theos in, in the yeah. New Testament as the cognate version. I mean, there's a distinction here that we need to be able to recognize and that uh, this mythos that the Hebrews decided that you couldn't pronounce the name of God. I mean, we don't know the name of God anyways. These are terms that are used. They're not actually the names. Um, you know, like Yahweh, Yehovah is rooted in the source word uh, Haya for was or became uh, in, in Hebrew. Um, so we don't know their real names. We wouldn't understand them anyways. Um, they'd be too too much for our feeble little brains to, to understand. So you have these things, that, and this is a classic example, where this didn't happen when the Torah was handed down to Moses. It didn't This tradition didn't start till after, guess when? The Babylonian exile. Somewhere between then and about 300 BC, it was said that you had to substitute Lord, which does show up as Adon, Adonai for my Lord, uh, for the for the latter um, in the Old Testament, but only 427 times. The other 6,000 times they're substituting Adon or Adonai for Lord, just as the polytheists believe Lord God is Baal. And they'll use wedge issues like that doesn't mean the word of God. That's Baal they're talking about. And they'll use all sorts of those things. And just as they call Adon the God of the Bible, and it's there to help destroy the faith in Christians when you're going to need the armor of God and faith the strongest. So if you don't have this Berean sense to learn, then your faith better be so strong with the armor of the God of that faith that you don't, even as people are telling you something different, you'll just say, no, I get that. But most people... It resonates and they start to think about it. And once that seed is planted, they've succeeded. You said an ultimate faith wedge from the enemy to thwart the people of God from understanding what was written, what our calling is, and what's really taking place. And that's just profound because everybody can, if we humble ourselves, there's a lot of people that want to ride very high horses, but if we've really got down to the nitty gritty where all are in desperate need. Like I, I think everybody has a little something wrong and everybody has a little something right. And that's being generous, right? But understanding this stuff is a duty that I feel called to. Now, you know, I got to hear something 10 times before um, it solidifies and stays, right? But once I know it, eh, I usually don't forget it. Gary, I want to ask you... In the antediluvian world, did they have a realm of technology that obviously we may be piercing into today or reactivating today, but I have a suspicion it has to do with adrenochrome. Is there any connection that you can see from, you know, adrenochrome, like, you know, this fear-based molecule that's released into the blood through all this satanic ritual stuff that's taking place, the fear rioting. Do you think that that has any power in reactivating an ancient realm technology from the antediluvian times? It's a strange question, but just help me out. What does that do? Well, what we do know from prehistory is that in polytheism, the gods provided 
all the tools for civilization, all the knowledge, all the language, all the skills. Uh, in the Book of Enoch, we're told the same thing. It comes from the fallen angels. And that we know that this knowledge merged within the religion and the governing powers, and it would have destroyed the whole world. And including all of the plant genomes that was perverting, shakath, the word that we talked about previous, if it's not on the show, it was on the show previous, that means uh, corrupted as we understand it in the, in the flood story, pervert, ruin, decay, destroy, words like that, all the plant genome, all the DNA, and including the human DNA, and that the, war, the world was going to be destroyed through violence or the wars caused by the giants that uh, and why you get the introduction of the giant creation as the preamble to the flood story. And that the angels walked amongst those antediluvians just as the offspring gods did for about the first hundred years after the flood and did the same sorts of horrible things as the celestial mafia, the godfathers did before the flood, including creating giants and other spurious offspring. And they shared this technology. And so when we talked about when we talk about things happening over and over and that nothing is new under the sun, that what was will be again, we need to understand that what happened before is continuing to happen. We just haven't received the Antichrist, but we will if this is indeed the victory generation that I think that we're in. And so the technology that they had as sort of manifested in a way that we can appreciate the level that they had was interdimensional travel, as what we've talked about in the Ugaritic text and a standard in, in polytheism, and the temples and the things they built, like Machu Picchu, yeah. like the pyramids, like... Yeah. Stonehenge, things that, you know, we would struggle to do today and, and, and many we can't do and put in sacred geometry and celestial alignment and earth-based ratios that they had no way of knowing. And if we can't do it to that accuracy in those locations and whatever else that angelic technology uh, was capable of doing, like as being those uh, like the pyramids, as we talked about, as stargates and other things, then we are just catching up to the days of Noah now. So just as they were fed exactly. technology, we're being fed that technology, just as the Nazis said they learned this knowledge through their spiritual uh, got, um guides or their celestial white mafia or aliens or however you want to perceive them that gave them the technology for blitzkrieg tiger tanks the jet engine the rocket engine this bell-shaped thing uh they're on track for the nuclear weapon until they couldn't get uh the heavy water supply because of the destruction of the norway plant that was creating the the heavy water all of that they said came rapidly from the invisible ones, and that had they been able to produce exactly. these weapons in enough yeah. numbers, they would have easily won the war. So, yeah. yes, whatever happened then, whether it's the Adremicon that people are talking about, whatever that angelic technology was, hmm. that's what they're bringing back today because what was will be again, and hmm. ultimately so that they can have war in heaven and try and overthrow God again. The enemy 
probably takes some type of minute confidence in seeing us as the image bearers of the most high God in a state of fear or panic, you know, because they have no other confidence. They can't look up to his throne and actually have the audacity to believe they're going to completely destroy him. I think it's all targeted through us. But let me ask you about the fig tree generation as deep as you'd want to go into it. If we are in the fig tree generation right now, what does that entail for me, the listeners, for you? What kind of roles do we play with all this foundational work we've laid over the last seven appearances you've had here? How does it all fit in? So the fig tree is, you could look at it an analogy as the tree that uh, Jesus killed before he starts to provide these end time uh, prophecies when the disciples ask them, and that that tree has not bearing any more fruit. But yet, when you see that fig tree in bloom again, this is the fig tree generation where all of the events that Jesus describes in chronological order in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and 21. But it's the template of Mark 24 uh, that I use as the template and then the additional details from Mark and Matthew that I overlay to get that chronology. We know it's a sequential event and that the fig tree is one of the three overarching signs. The three overarching signs are the fig tree generation, the days of Noah that follows right after uh, the the fig tree uh, archetypical sign and the sorrows. And I'll come back to the sorrows. And we know it's chronological because he uses the word then, and that's the Greek word tota. And it means exactly that. And then it's the when, and then this happens, and then this happens. And then you get the middle of the seven as defined as Daniel 9.27 at, at Matthew 24.15 through 20. And then you have the second half of some of the events that are coming there. And so, and we know we can put Revelation around that template because it's the testimony of Jesus Christ, as it says in Revelation 1, 1 to about 3, uh, given to the angel to be given to John. So it has to work. And again, there's, it's not that hard to figure out how to work the chronology and overlay that onto Revelation 9 once you understand that. Uh, but I don't have time to explain all of that today. Um, but understand that you can rely on that template. And in the Old Testament, the vine is the lost tribes of the northern kingdom in prophetic allegory. And in and I'll, I'll get into this uh, in detail in book three that I'm working on now. And the fig tree is the southern kingdom. So we see the southern kingdom declaring independence with the migration that's been going back in 1947 and taking of Jerusalem in 1967. And a generation in the Bible is 40 years as uh, the generation in the wilderness, but they lived before that. Uh, 70 years in the book of Psalms and 120 years in Genesis 6, 3 in the creation of giants where life was limited thereafter for uh, beings being created, unless there's some sort of angelic technology that's illegally used to let them live longer. And so if it's 1947, I don't think that would be the start to the victory generation because Jerusalem is kind of an epicenter for end time prophecy. It needs to be in place and controlled by the Southern Southern kingdom. And that happens in 1967. So now you're left with, you know, okay, 40 years is kind of come and gone. So you're into the 70 or 120. If that's 
the starting point, and I think it might be. So if it's 70 or 120 years, we're getting very close with the 70 years, which would start to hit that countdown in the 2030s. But if it's 120 years, there's lots more time before this has to happen. But it hasn't have to go to the full generation. It just could happen within that sort of time frame. So where would we be in terms of the seals and the trumpets and the wrath bowls? Well, yeah, we're yeah. not there yet. We're not even mm-hmm. at the seals yet. We're in the sorrows as being introduced at the start of the sequence. And those are wars, rumors of wars as being the same, earthquakes, pestilence or famine, and um, famine. And they're the same catastrophes that are shown in Revelation 6, uh, in the trumpets and, you know, Revelation, uh, um, I think about 7 starts and through... uh, right through to 12, uh, one could say even into Revelation 14 with the trumpets. But, and then you have the year of the Lord's wrath with the wrath bowls being poured out in the year of the Lord in the last year. They're all the same catastrophes, they just get stronger. So 25% destruction with the seals, 33% with the trumpets, and then all life and everything on the earth, the Shiva syndrome, unless Jesus steps in to prevent uh-huh. all flesh from being killed. And so we're not at the seals yet. We haven't had that type of destruction or wars, and we haven't seen the royales and the nobility going underground and hiding because it's so bad that even they think it might be the day of the Lord or the year of the Lord, as in Revelation 6 sounds about. And we just saw some pestilence. It's just the beginning. And with the sorrows or the birth pangs, the analogy is that that comes out of the Old Testament is that they get stronger and more often as you get closer to the birth. With 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 this uh, prophetic allegory is you know the coming of Jesus at the end of uh, you know the last three and a half years, and particularly at Armageddon would be that that sort of fulfillment of it, and so. We're going to see these catastrophes get stronger. We might even overlay surging of the seas that the book of Luke talks about. And they're going to be starting to work together. And we don't have a globalist government yet. We don't have a universal religion yet. We haven't seen the Jewish people start sacrificing on a wing of a temple, of the temple that is controlled by the uh, by Islam today. Um, and so there's lots of things yet to happen. Now, things can happen quickly with catastrophes, but we have to be careful about getting ahead of the chronology just because we see something that looks like an apocalyptic event because they're the same catastrophes. They just get stronger and they're all contrived. That's yeah. the other thing. I think they're, my, my understanding is it's not God levying these catastrophes on us. It's like it's been all the way through. It's free choice. It's what the rulers of this world permit their spirit's offspring to do. What view do you hold are you a pre-tribulation rapture guy? Are you post-tribulation? Where do you kind of set with all that? And then what are your thoughts on the millennial reign? So where I am, and one of the things and the rules that I lay down in book two that I do is I don't avoid inconvenient scripture. And so approaches that do that, that's a red flag. 
or yeah. and I don't reimagine what Scripture says, and I have to follow the rules that can't contradict. And I have yeah. these guidelines that try and help me, and so uh, that's the approach that I take. So when I when I use that approach, I mean I pray and hope for pre-trib, but I'm preparing for mid-trib, and just ask sometime just after the mid-trib. And I'll cover that sort of alignment off in, in, in book two. And we're told we're going to go through tribulation to get into the heaven of God. Exactly. And uh, people can view, they like to conflate terms like tribulation and wrath. Well, tribulation is the Hebrew, uh, Greek word thalipsis. And... In the New Testament, in Greek, you don't get philipses used for the wrath of God. You get orge and thumos. And similarly, you get sarah for the time of trouble, in the time of Jacob's trouble, and the time of trouble in Daniel 12, which isn't used for the wrath of God, you know, which is, has several different uh, names in Hebrew, you know, like Chema and Ketzeth, and oh, I'm trying to think of them. Af is another one. So, and again, I cover off all of those terms in, in, in the new book. So they're separate terms. And that term Sarah is cognate to Thalipses of the New Testament, just as those other words are cognate to Orge and Thumos in Greek. And so we can make some interconnections there. So you get uh, the tribulation of the saints, in Revelation 7, that those first fruits in Revelation 6 were martyred for. And they have to wait for those to come out of the tribulation. Yeah, exactly. There's going to be exactly. 10 years of, of tribulation as Revelation um, 3 talks of, or is it 310 or 210? It's either one. Uh, but anyways, it's it's 10, 10 days of tribulation. A day is a year is in the, the weeks of years. And so there's 10 days of tribulation. So even before the last seven years, there's going to be tribulation that I think is caused by Babylon and the Babylonian tribulation in the first three and a half years that the Holy Spirit in Mark and Luke is going to enter into us to help us testify against the authorities of, of, of the world and both invisible and visible at that time. And so you get that word, great tribulation, in Matthew 24, 21, and then again, a couple of verses after, which is Philipses again. That's different than the tribulation of the saints. It's the great tribulation of the world not seen since before creation. And so if we look at the affliction that's coming on in Matthew 24, that's before the abomination, that's at the beginning of the chronological order, that's the Hebrew word thalipsis, not it should be translated as tribulation to be consistent, or the other one should be translated as affliction. And how do we how do we know that it gets sort of mixed up in the translators, whether it's by design or by error? Is in Matthew 24, where you have that great tribulation not seen since the beginning of the world. The cognate passage for it in Revelation in Mark 13, 19 
is the great affliction not seen since the beginning of the world. And that goes back to Thalipses as well. And so there's two different tribulations that we have to sort of understand. And so once you start to put everything yeah. around what Jesus said, all of the contradictions go away. And so the millennium, it's, yeah, it comes after the end of uh, Revelation 9 or Revelation 19. And Revelation doesn't use the Hebrew word or the Greek word tota. It uses the Greek word kahi. And it's designed to do the same thing. So where you see the word and, that's denoting the when again. And then this happens and then this happens. And it's used all the way through the book of Revelations. And that is the same word that separates Armageddon and into the, the millennium. And when you look at this little season that people like to use as being the time that we're in and we've had everything erased, um, it doesn't really sort of stand up to the Greek sort of understanding of that, uh, especially when you look at that word kahi in terms of the order and the chronology of the events. And a little season is used one other time as a term in the New Testament, and that's in Revelation 6, where the, the tribulation or the first fruit martyrs since the time of Jesus who are raised to heaven are told to wait for a little season. So the maximum you could make that is three and a half years, but the traditional use for season would be three months. Um, and it wouldn't take uh, Satan hundreds of years in that sort of understanding of how they expand the little season uh, to deceive the world that, you know, and to, you know, try and lead people astray again, that happens at the end of the millennium. It's like a very short period of time. So once you take it back to the original Greek and you take it back to how does it fit with all the other passages, I get a pretty straightforward, linear sort of outlaying of Revelation, and you just have to look for a, a couple of important pieces there. The, the You have the throne events that are going on in heaven, uh, which is, again, in order of the sequence as, as what is required for there. You have what I would call the dual prophecy part of the seven churches, which doesn't have all the events that are fulfilled in the first uh uh, letters that went to those churches that uh, John, who isn't raptured because he's in the spirit of heaven, he comes back and then he has to deliver those <laughs> letters to the churches. Um, and Jerusalem isn't included. And it would have been the home city uh, of the Jerusalem church if you had an earlier uh, writing of of uh, Revelation. And there's a couple other issues with that. I won't get into all of all of that. But if you look at that as a section that has uh, important information that tells us about prehistory, about the time of the prophet of John, and a couple of pieces in each for the end time prophecy, that's a classic dual prophecy, as in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and others. And you have um, the last seven years starting in around about the, the, the uh, <clears throat> Revelation 6 and the seals. You have the days of the trumpet that overlap just past the midpoint of the last seven years. And you have the wrath bowls at the end of the last seven years. Everything just kinds of fits. And in Revelation, you get the first fruits 
144,000, as they're called, the first fruits shown in heaven, kind of inferring that they've died with their commission. And that is at the midpoint of three and a half years. Uh, and just at the same timing, you have that start of the seventh trumpet were the ending of the two witness commissions of three and a half years in Revelation 11. And then you get a summary of the last three and a half year events in Revelation 14 in exact chronological order, how they'll happen. And then in Revelation 15 and 16, you get um, what's going on in heaven. And then you get the bold judgments that are going to happen in the year of the Lord's wrath. And then in 18, you get that destruction of Babylon that happens in the days of the trumpet after the power with the high mind of the like-minded kings, the 10 kings hand their power over to Antichrist to destroy. They destroy uh, Babylon and Antichrist sets up his end time religion. And then you have uh, the reign of Antichrist and then the year of the Lord's wrath bulls that happen at the end in Revelation 19. Superlative, uh, deep and thorough. Gary is... It's quite a time that we're living in and to be able to, you know, just team up with you here for you to join and share this information to get the body stirred up, to get us back in the correct order of just what you said when I asked you what your stance was on pre-trib, post-trib, you said it has to make sense with the Bible. We can't favor certain scriptures and leave other scriptures out, accept all of it. And that's why you're so thorough. And that's why you're a wealth of information. Uh, the book we had we had mentioned in part one, we're still hoping the date is March 12th, that that gets released so everybody can look forward to um, that date. But plug in where you can be found, Gary. Yes. So the best place to get hold of me is through my website. That's the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, the number six, genesis6conspiracy.com. And on that website, you can go to contact the author, and that's my genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com email address to get a hold of me. If you want to get some, ask me a question or get some more information, I have a lot of documents that I give out at no charge. Just name it by topic. If I've got that, I'll send it to you. Uh, and on that website, you can find a generous excerpt of um, book one. Um, and for book two, 98 chapters on book one and 84 on book two. And book one is one of the most unique books on the market as what book two will be. And one of the things I really liked about what Christian said about book one is it made the Old Testament come to life. Well, book two does that in so many more ways. And it's coming right out of the Bible. And it's going to just give you visions of, of, of antiquity from a biblical perspective that you may not have had before. And if you're a fan of Dr. Heiser, the former Dr. Heiser, I've, I, I've never worked with him or did a show with him or anything like that from what, but what I understand from his research is this book will be sort of Heiser-like, but on steroids. And I'm going to put all that information in the footnotes on the same page as opposed to the end notes that I did on the first book, because there's so much information into uh, the uh, footnotes and that I put in there. So you can read what I'm talking about up there, and then you've got the footnote for it. There will be details in the show notes. So you guys can go right down there, find Gary's website, a link to that, and get you sent over there. I'll have to get you scheduled to come back on after the book releases, after we get yes. some feedback yep. and we just uh, continue to do what it is we do, man. And, and I'm thankful for everything that you do. Well, I thank you. And uh, I, 
Uh, you know, I said I would never write a sequel to the Genesis Six Conspiracy <laughs> 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 yeah. oh, because geez. I wanted to get more into prophecy. But you know, yeah. I was, but because of the contact from the audience, uh, emails on shows, yeah. and I do shows where I just answer questions, um, is there's this hunger for tell us what's in the Bible and in yeah. a way that hasn't been done in the, in the past. So I took that to heart to, to do Genesis six and what it did do mm. in part two. And I was struggling with this book three that I was working with. And I just was like pushing a rock uphill. I was 300 pages into it and I didn't like any of it um, in terms of the look or the format or the feel. And so I stopped that to write this book. And uh, what I learned was, is how to do it in writing book two and that if i was if i could learn to listen better i would have done that a few years ago <laughs> and because uh, <laughs> i'm flowing through nicely and i really like yeah. how this new book is going to come on and it's going to be under the same kind of genesis 6 conspiracy sort of branding mm -hmm. because i wanted it's a book about israel judah the holy covenant the lost tribes and the second yeah. exodus in the end time and so it begins in the time of giants and the building of the holy covenant and the reconciliation in the end time is just so important and to how i understand how that fits into end time prophecy so that'll be book three when i get that done i'm not i'm not rushing through it though <laughs> you know i think i think my research is unique as well so um and a lot there's a lot of people who do research in prehistory a lot of people on prophecy a lot on bloodlines and this but to get it all put together into one picture is what makes it unique i think and Absolutely. so and then yeah. then the research because i realized in book one if i didn't have the research down that what i was talking about was not going to get accepted out there at all and exactly. that if I couldn't get on and explain and talk about it, that it wasn't yep. going to be long lasting. Yeah. It would just get pushed off to the side. So I think not only the books are, are unique, but being able to be transparent and uh, I'm not trying to hide what's in the book. I want people to get the books because uh, in each of the books, I can't talk about everything that's in them. It's just not possible in one show. Yes, or couldn't do shows, it. Yeah, so. can't do that. <laughs> it's too much there. But you do a very good job um, helping us to connect the dots and, and drum up the interest. Like you normally say in the beginning of an episode, um, well, hopefully we can you know, uh, spark some, some more questions to come about and help people to make sense of what's going on. And you do just that and so much more. And uh, that's it for our two-part series here with Gary Wayne. We have a lot of plans for the podcast this year you guys but the lord does direct our steps i ask that you keep us in prayer and share these episodes with a friend family member share it with your pastor coming to you from southeastern pennsylvania god bless and goodbye stamp one hour one hour five minutes <clears throat>
So I'll take you up on that two minute break. Yeah, yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's take like a five minute break open. real quick. I gotta, yeah. I gotta pee. So. Off. <laughs> yep. uh, I'll just meet you back here in a couple minutes, man. No, no pressure. And I'll see you when you get back, okay? Thanks. Bye. All right. Okay. And I'm Can back. Can you hear me? All right. I- Perfect. Okay. So, all right. What do we have here? All right, Gary, if you can just do another intro for me, um, just, you know, say who you are and welcome us to the Millennium Mustard Seed and we'll jump right into this part two. Ready whenever you are, sir. Hello, everybody. I'm Gary Wayne and happy to be back on the mustard, Millennial Mustard Seed. I'm going to start this again, if you don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, please. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So... You are. No, I needed to laugh. Thank you, Bob. It's actually really good. Uh, that felt great. Yeah.